As you're seated, if you'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, almost the entire chapter will be our focal text today. For me as a cyclist, one of the enduring visions or images of the first week of the Olympics was Dutch cyclist Annemiek van Vluten crossing the finish line at the Olympic road race, her arms raised out, a smile of joy on her face as she thought she had won the gold medal in the women's road race. 140 kilometers, almost 100 miles, about 90 miles, with some tough climbs in the middle. What Van Vluten didn't know is that Austrian cyclist Anna Kiesenhofer had taken off on an attack from kilometer zero, and with a group of five, then a group of three, and then solo for the last 40 kilometers, had put the hammer down and had finished almost two minutes ahead of her. Van Vluten, who thought that she was the gold medalist, was the silver medalist. And the unknown, the cyclist without a professional contract for the last four years who completed her master's degree and her doctoral degree while continuing to ride her bike with the goal of winning an Olympic medal had shocked the cycling world to win a gold medal. I had to go back and watch the race myself. I'm a fan of Van Vluten. She's a hardworking gal. She had a horrendous crash in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics, and this would be redemption for her. And she was on the top of her form as she could be there. But I had to see, how did Kiesenhofer get away? How did she stay away? And then, how did she stay away for 40 kilometers at the end? She's known as a time trialist. Time trialists in cycling know their ability to put a certain amount of power out over a certain amount of time, and they know how, in our cycling terms, to suffer. And watching her over those last 40 kilometers, it was so difficult. I understood when you saw the images of Anna Kiesenhofer, who actually won the gold, crossing the finish line, that she couldn't even raise her arms up straight. Her torso wasn't even straight. She was contorted and had a look of joy and pain on her face, and she could hardly raise her arms up. After she crossed the finish line, she collapsed. She could hardly breathe, weeping and crying and gasping for breath. She had, for 40 kilometers, pedaled her legs and her lungs and her heart out, knowing that her deliverance would come win or lose at the finish line. We don't necessarily have finish lines in life where we know when our deliverance is going to come. We know that someday we will die, but we don't know when that day will be. We know that someday the semester will be over, and yes, we know when that will be. But let's say you're struggling with pain or an illness, you don't know when the pain will go away or when that illness will stop. Let's say you're struggling with something like addiction. You know that it could be overcome, but you don't know when and how and how long and when you'll be delivered from those things. Deliverance is not an easy subject to talk about. We know we need it. We know we want it. Our minds, our hearts desire deliverance, but how to get there because most of the time, even though what Anna Kiesenhofer did was amazing, we don't know when the end will come and how much ability we have to get to the end to be delivered. In our passage of Scripture today from Acts chapter 12, we see a story of deliverance. 
And our story of deliverance reminds us that God can do things that we cannot imagine. And we have to be careful with our modern day sensibilities not to think that God can't still do these things. Not to say to ourselves, oh, that's a story in the Bible. That doesn't happen like that anymore. God doesn't do those things anymore. God isn't God like that anymore. God doesn't have that kind of power we're inferring. If you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you do so as we read Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial at the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on his side and woke him up. Get up! Quick! He said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. But Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand to them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and his brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers at what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this man is the voice of God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. 
But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Pray with me. God, we read this dramatic story with two miraculous happenings. And we wonder, can you still do this? Are you still this sort of God? We see it happening in the Bible and we accept it as true, but in our lives, we tend to make excuses even for your sovereignty and power. We tend to let our reasons overcome your abilities. And our questions overcome what could be faith. So God, our Father, we pray that you speak to us now by your word, that we would be empowered to believe as those believers then to see that you are God and you can do the miraculous. We pray it in the name of Jesus and everyone said, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We've got five points to consider with our sermon today and five questions that apply along with those. And the first of those points is that you can't defeat God's chosen. You can't defeat God's chosen. If God has chosen someone, if God has chosen something, if God has directed some course, you cannot overcome it. You cannot defeat it. No matter who you are, no matter what you try, you can't defeat God's chosen. You just can't. We need to remember that. We see that from verses 1 through 5 of our text today, that it was about this time that King Herod arrested some that belonged to the church. Well, King Herod, we got to make sure we understand. There was King Herod the Great that was the King Herod of Jesus' day and time, but this is almost a decade later. This is King Herod the First. He reigned from 37 to 44. And King Herod the First was the grandson of King Herod the Great. This guy, King Herod the First had grown up in Rome and had all sorts of privilege, but got into debt, got into trouble, got imprisoned by uh, Tertullian, um, uh, the Roman Empire, or Tertullius, excuse me, the Roman Emperor. But when that guy was murdered, died, he was let out of prison, and they said, hey, let's send you over here. We're going to put you in charge of Palestine, at least the area we know as Palestine, modern-day Israel, in order to be the king of of this area and run it for us. He's still on shaky ground. And so trying to prop himself up with the Jewish people of this area, the Jewish people who do not like this growing movement of the Christian church of Christ followers who are now called Christians at Antioch, as we found out, he got James, the brother of John, and he put him to death with a sword. We don't have any reasons given for there, as Luke is reporting this in the book of Acts for us, other than the fact that he was trying to curry favor with the majority population in his area. Heinous, twisted, unfair. Verse 3, when he saw this pleased the Jewish people, what did he do? He sees Peter. Peter is recognized by many as the spokesman, the head of the church there at Jerusalem, maybe uh, as well with James, the brother of, or half-brother of Jesus, but Peter, the one who's preached these sermons, Peter, the one that's done these miracles, Peter that's already been thrown in jail, already been set free miraculously, Peter, he captures. And this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he put him in prison, verse 4 tells us, handing him over to four squads of soldiers, of four each. 
So these four guys may have been rotating in four shifts throughout the day, six hours each, you know, a little bit of time to get there, a little bit. I don't know how they did it, but that's probable. And what we see in our passage of Scripture is that when it came to how he was imprisoned in a cell of heaven knows what size, he was chained between two of these men at any given time, and two more of these men were stationed outside his cell. So 16 soldiers set aside just to guard what we would call today a high-value target, Peter, by Herod Agrippa I. And look at what it says there in the end of verse 4. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. The Passover, when all the Jewish people would be gathered together, the Passover, when they came to worship God, the Passover, when Herod could get the most buzz, the Passover would say, oh, look at what Herod did for us. Those guys who aren't real Jews that keep talking about this Jesus. Herod put that guy, Peter, to death. Ha ha, don't we like Herod? This is just twisted and wicked. It's not unlike the things we see in our modern world today with people in power and people that want power and how to preserve power and playing politics and all those sort of things. But it's just terrible. And innocent folks' lives at stake. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That term earnestly or fervently is a medical term. My story I told you about Anna Kiesenhofer winning the gold, unexpected, and Annemiek van Vluten winning the silver. Thought she won the gold. These ladies know how to do exactly what this term fervently or earnestly means because it's a medical term meaning to stretch a muscle to its limit, to push yourself, to keep going, and to keep going when you don't think you can go anymore. It's the term used of Jesus in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was crying out to God to stretch yourself. This perseverance is the type of prayer they had. Our first point asks us a first question, and that first question is, how have I faced opposition? How have I faced opposition? When the first church there faced opposition of one of their leaders, Peter, being captured, they faced opposition by persistent, fervent, ongoing, unceasing, stretching prayer. I don't know about you, my first reaction when I face opposition is to complain about it. Anybody else? I like to fuss about it. I like to make noises about it. My wife will tell me when we're in the car, they can't hear you. It doesn't do any good. We're the only ones that hear you. Would you just stop it? But somehow it makes me feel better if I can complain about other people's driving or about, you know, traffic or something like that. But that's not a whole lot of opposition, is it? But what about opposition from a family member? What about opposition in a relationship where the stakes are high and it's not some unknown person cutting you off in traffic that you're fussing at, but somebody that you want to love or you used to love and you still desire to love and have a relationship with? How do you handle that? Or what about opposition when it's something medical that the pain won't go away and it can't seem to be fixed and you don't know how you're going to make it through? How you face opposition. What about opposition when it's an addiction 
and you thought you could control it, you thought you can handle it, and you recovered, but then you relapsed, and you recovered, and then you relapsed, and here you are again, and you wonder if you've come to your bottom. Scripture tells us, and Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares on him, God, because he cares for you. Maybe you need to write that one down. The very Peter who was in this situation later in his life wrote that scripture verse, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares, or the other way to explain that is cast all your anxieties on God for he cares for you. He's not going to let you down, Peter's saying. He didn't let me down. Think about what Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 19. My God shall supply all your needs according to to his riches and glory. What do you need? God will supply it. Maybe not how you expect or when you expect or as you expect, but God will supply all your needs. Ephesians 3.20 says, we serve a God who can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or imagine. Matthew 6.33 reminds us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. All we need. All will be added. Jesus himself said in John 15, 7, ask anything in my name and it will be done for you. When have you faced opposition and how have you faced opposition? Have you faced it with prayer? Because you can't defeat God's chosen. Let's move on to your second point in your outline. That's that you can't overcome God's power. You can't overcome God's power. You can try to overcome God's power. You can think you can overcome God's power, but you can't overcome God's power. He's between two soldiers. He's bound up in chains. It's in the middle of the night. And what happens there in verse 7? An angel of the Lord shows and a light shines. The chains fall off of him. And (laughs) he can't overcome God's power. When we watch the Olympics, and I love to watch the Olympics, you know, you think about the Olympic dream and the folks that have trained their whole life, or at least since they got serious, but they've dedicated their life to this dream, that they may be running a race or swimming a race that mass, uh, or, you know, doing something else that lasts a matter of seconds, or maybe that it's not that that event lasts a matter of seconds, but what decides the event between silver, gold, bronze, or fourth place, or lower down the charts, is mere split seconds milliseconds, hundreds of seconds. They trained since the Rio Olympics for five years, but here they are, and in an instant, it's decided. It was a long time, but it happened in an instant. The same sort of thing happens when we pray. We may pray for a long time, but the answer can come in an instant. And our lesson is do not stop praying. Persevere, persist, have faith, don't give up. God's timing is not our timing. But God desires our faith, and the amount of time may be to strengthen our faith, not to test us as in God's out to get us, but to test us, to strengthen us, to stretch us, to develop us, to grow us, to mature us, to make us more like Christ. What happens in verse 8? The angel says to him, put on your clothes, get on your sandals. We're going out of here, bro. I'm not here just to say howdy, Peter. I'm here to bust you out of this joint. And you got to love what happens next. Because, you know, you've watched Star Wars movies, right? How Jedis have to wave their hand to open a door or something like that. Or they have to do like this to open something. This angel's so cool, he didn't even have to wave his hand. It says, the door open. Boom. All right. Go, angel. 
I mean, the angel just walks up to the door and it opens like an automatic sliding glass door. But it's a prison door that had a lock on it. And they walk out the door and they're walking down the street. Peter still thinks it's a dream, it says, until the angel leaves him when they get a block away from the prison. Then he's like, whoa, I am really out of prison. That was really an angel. I am really free. Where have I got to go? I'm going to go to Mary's house, the mom of John Martin, because I imagine the church will be there praying. And that's what he does. We have a question here, and that question is, when have I witnessed a miracle? We can't overcome God's power. God did a miraculous thing here, somehow putting the guards to sleep and allowing the angel to come in and then walk out without touching the door and walk down the street and the angel disappear. Miracle, miracle, miracle. But when have you witnessed a miracle? Something that you would legitimately say, that was a miracle. I didn't expect that to change. There's no way that could change. Medically, that couldn't change. Emotionally, that couldn't change. Relationally, that couldn't change. Spiritually, it couldn't change. But it did. God performed a miracle. That second song we sang today, and Jason, thank you for leading in Myra's absence, started with the verse that says, Saturday was silent, surely it was through. Talking about silent Saturday between the day Jesus was crucified and the day he arose. The Bible didn't talk much about silent Saturday, hence we call it that. But then it has that next line, but since when has impossible ever stopped you? It says Friday's disappointment is Sunday's empty tomb. They thought Jesus was dead on Friday, only for him to rise from the dead on Sunday. Friday's disappointment is Sunday's empty tomb. What's happening in your life right now that you're sitting in Friday or you're sitting in Saturday and you're going, I need Sunday. Sunday's coming, friends. Sunday is coming. God can still do miracles. When have you witnessed a miracle, something that you have prayed for, that it's still the same God? He still has the same power. He still answers prayer. He still has the ability to save, to deliver, to heal. That's our God. We can't defeat God's chosen. We can't overcome His power. The third thing on your outline is we can't imagine God's deliverance. We can't imagine God's deliverance. You've been there before. You've been there before when the thing you prayed for finally comes true and you're kind of going, is it real? Did it really happen? I mean, Peter was there already. He thought it was a dream until the angel disappeared and he's like, whoa, it's really me. So he goes down the street. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. He's knocking on the door. I'm sure the folks praying are probably like, oh, it's the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities here to hassle us again. Rhoda, servant girl, go answer the door. Go. We don't want to talk to him. Still knocking on the door, Rhoda goes, and she recognizes Peter's voice. I don't know if Peter recognized her voice, but he's like, hey, it's me, it's Peter, the A.U. you've been praying for. Look at what the scripture says there. When she recognized Peter's voice, verse 14, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening the door. She was so excited. She's like, it's Peter, it's Peter. Oh, you got to get it's Peter. But the reaction, I don't know if it's priceless, but it's human. Verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told her. Time out. What did verse 5 said? 
What did I make a big deal about in verse 5? They had been praying earnestly, like a muscle being stretched to its limit. They were persisting. They hadn't given up. What were they praying earnestly, I beg ask? God helped the guards to be nice to Peter. God helped Peter make it through. God, when Peter gets executed, help it be quick and painless. What were they praying? Did they not believe that God could let Peter out of prison? He'd already done it before. What were they praying? So when Peter shows up, when Rhoda says, Peter's at the door, they're like, you're out of your mind. It must be his angel. Time out again. They can believe in an angel, but they can't believe in a miraculous deliverance. How many of us limit God that way? God, I think you can do these things right here. But all these things, no, God, you can never do those things. God, I think you'll answer my prayer this way or this way, but this way, this way, this way, and this way, and this way. Nope, God, you can never do that. That's exactly what we do, isn't it? We limit God. They limited God. We can't imagine God's deliverance. Our question there asks, how's God surprised me? I had to use that word there because I've had that happen before. You know, I've prayed for something, and then I thought it was going to go this way because, you know, I thought it, so it must be right, right? I mean, I don't know about you. You always tend to be right, right? Until you find God's answer, then you go, oh, I wasn't right. Oh, wait a second. I'm me. I'm fallible. I'm sinful. I've got limited knowledge, limited ability. He's God. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-loving. He's all-knowing. Yeah, God's way is probably right. How is it that we continue to be amazed when God shows up and does things that only God can do? Can't avoid God's judgment. So, Herod, Peter's gone. Don't know where Peter's gone. What are you going to do? Execute all 16 soldiers? Nice. Thank you, Herod. Heinous, right? Despicable, but that's the way of the world. And rather than stay in town now so he can make a big spectacle of executing Peter since his prized prisoner Peter has disappeared, he decides to go for an ocean holiday to Caesarea. He's going to go down by Caesarea because those people don't like him, and well, I'll go poke them a little bit. Well, they decide, okay, here's a way we can work around. So they get this guy Blastus, and they get it worked out. And so then they come to have an audience with Herod, and Herod gives a speech, and they're like, oh, wow, this is the voice of a god. Well, they're really laying it on because they just need him for his food. But since Herod, who stood against God's anointed, doesn't say, "Uh, I'm not a god, God strikes him down, and he's eaten with worms. There's some debate. Was literally like worms come out and eat him right then and there? Or was it something that was medical, that he had cyst with a tapeworm, and those came out, and they ate him, and then... Yeah, we don't need to go into all that sort of stuff other than that. But here's the question of your fourth point. Where does my pride show? When somebody says something nice to you, and you kind of stand up a little tall... I mean, you're not saying, or they're not saying of you, oh, wow, that person's like God. No, I probably not. But when do you get puffed up and take credit for things that aren't yours to take credit for? 
What happens in your life that causes that sort of pride that is dangerous and sinful and can lead to your judgment? Because if we serve a God who can do the miraculous, and one of those miracles can be to put somebody who's proud to death, we should probably learn we shouldn't be that kind of pride, should we? Our fifth and final point this morning from verse 24 is that you can't stop God's mission. The word of God continued to increase and spread. It grew. It multiplied. God was at work. Decades ago, Henry Blackaby wrote a study called Experiencing God that many of you have done. And if you haven't, you can buy a book and you can read it. I'd highly recommend it. It'll change your view of the way God works. Because what Blackaby taught then that is true is that God is always at work around us. Always. And we shouldn't ask the question, what is God's will for my life? That is an arrogant, selfish, prideful question. We should ask, what is God's will? And we find out where God is at work and join Him there. We don't ask God to join us. He's God, we're us. We join Him where He's already at work. Think about Herod in our passage of Scripture today. He did it his way. It didn't work. He ended up dead. God did His thing. It always works. He ends up with the glory. Which leads to our fifth and final question. And that is, how is God working through me? How's God working through me in my life right now? If not now, when has He worked in the past? What do I pray that He's doing in the future? How is God working through me? When will it start? When can I surrender myself to that? Well, right now. God's will prevails. God's sovereignty is always sure. God's power is always sufficient. If we'll only trust in Him to deliver us and to do the things that only God can do. Let's pray. God, our Father, we've seen this story that's full of the miraculous and things that we can hardly believe. And we want to tell ourselves, oh, that's in the Bible. That happens then. But could you do things in our lives that are miraculous and unbelievable for your glory, for your namesake, to grow our faith that we might be more like Jesus and we might lead others to be more like Jesus too. So God, our Father, we pray that for those of us that are Christ followers, that we wouldn't be condemned by this sermon as much as encouraged that we can have that kind of faith, that kind of perseverance in prayer, because you are still that God who will answer and will do the miraculous. And God, for those who are not yet believers in Jesus here today, we trust that maybe today, even today, right now, one of them would put their faith in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.